Hi, welcome to Cyphlopod. My name is Corey Clark, and I am the director of the Adversarial Collaboration Project at University of Pennsylvania. And this is my co-host. Bo Weingard, and I am an independent scholar and essayist. Ah, nice. Yeah. Um, uh, today, Bo and I are going, well, we've been, we've been disagreeing for a while um, on how woke academia is really versus how uh, woke it appears to be. Um, or another way to frame the question is, is there a sort of preference falsification problem happening in academia where academics have tendencies to portray themselves as more woke as they really are privately? Um, but or also, is there a public ignorance? Is there like a collective ignorance problem? Yeah. That yeah. is, do people in the system, as it were, think that it's more woke than it is? Right, right. Um, before we get into that, um, Bo and I, I we, we just lost access to our Cyphlopod Twitter account, um, and I was just going to make a new Twitter handle for us, but Bo uh, pointed out that no one understands, no one gets Cyphlopod as a, as a podcast name. Um, which it's is weird because he's an elitist. <laughs> it's a hilarious pun, but something which passes over the head of many. So, oh. um, so we are rebranding as the antisocial psychologists. Uh, also a hilarious pun. <laughs> no, you gave it away. We were supposed to pretend like there was no hidden meaning. <laughs> there's only a hidden meaning if you get it. If you don't, there's not. <laughs> um, so we'll probably, uh, after we upload this episode, we'll probably eventually change our logo and name um, yes. on the podcast and the YouTube channel. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so so Bo and I have been debating this issue for, I think, several months. Uh, like a good scientist, I've been collecting data on the issue, and Bo's just been naysaying me. <laughs> Like a good philosopher, <laughs> I have just been speculating from the armchair. Uh, and my my feeling, uh, so uh, a little background is, I conducted um, like around forty one interviews with mostly psychology professors, and then as a follow up to that, I conducted a, a survey. Um, I invited around forty six hundred professors to participate, and we got around four hundred seventy. Um, and my sense is that people are, I think the impression people have is that the majority of academics are these really far left people who are pro-social justice everything and they have sort of negative attitudes toward the people who are pushing for academic freedom and open inquiry um, at the expense of some of these social justice issues that people care about. I think that's what the impression is. Um, I think the reality is that there's a very, very vocal minority of people who are these super pro social justice types and are the kinds who would want to shut down research, fire professors, get papers retracted, not hire people who are deserving because of their political views or whatever. But that is maybe only, we have a range of confidence, maybe like 10 to 30% of academics. And then a larger proportion of people are actually fed up with that. Uh, maybe like, I'll say 20 to 
And then there are people in the middle who are kind of on the fence, but also they're really scared of the 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 like the wokest among their peers. Um, so it's not that they have strong feelings one way or another, but they're particularly terrified of this vocal minority. Uh, and so even though they would speak up against this group, they don't because they're afraid of the repercussions for their own careers. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's what's happening now. And that's what my data, I think, seem to suggest. Right, to, to sort of back up and set up the problem. There is a mm -hmm. general view that academia is, I would say radically progressive, but at minimum is is pretty Sorry, progressive. Sorry, I'm not sure if you cut out or if my audio cut out, but can you repeat yourself? There's a general view that academia is progressive, is ra mm -hmm. probably radically progressive, right? Yeah. Or what we will call woke. And we don't mean that necessarily in a demeaning manner, although I'm not a fan of wokeism, so-called. So well, maybe we should define, like, when I say woke, I don't just mean, like, people who are on the far left who care about social justice. I mean, people who are on the far left who care about social justice at the expense of, like, other things, um, yeah, and that they I let mean, it interfere with actual scientific progress. Um, yeah, it's a kind of illiberal worldview that believes yeah. it's more important to protect victims groups than to pursue certain freedoms, freedom of and inquiry, I guess like, freedom of speech, uh, etc. Pursue equity, uh, and that's more important than, you know, discovering what's true about the world or... Or it can you know, be more important. It, it can yeah. be, yeah. Yeah, so there's this, there's this view that academia is generally woke and, and uh, there are many symptoms of this wokeism, such as articles getting retracted for violating certain taboos, for um, in, impinging upon goals of social justice or equity, and professors getting fired also for violating those taboos or for talking about taboo topics and arriving at the wrong mm -hmm. conclusions about them. And the question is, what is the cause of this? Well, first of all, is this an accurate view of academia? And then even if it is an accurate view, what is the cause of it? And do are most professors actually woke? Mm -hmm. So because I think what's important to do is separate the attitudes of individual professors from the function of academia as a group. So the fundamental, the salient question is, how does academia function? I don't think it's what are the attitudes of individual professors. And I'll give you an example. So if we want to understand how Walmart is going to work, it's we want to uh, analyze it from a functional group-based perspective. That is, we don't really care what are the interests and desires of cashiers or stockers at Walmart? What we care about is what is the overall behavior of Walmart and what does Walmart quote unquote want? I mean, I agree that we care about the overall behavior, but I think it's not, I don't think Walmart's a particularly good metaphor because there you have, uh, you know, people in positions of power and the majority of people who work for Walmart don't have any power, say, over the direction of the company. Whereas mm -hmm. academia is, it's not a democracy necessarily, but it is much more so in that I think the individual attitudes of scientists uh, really do have a, I mean, 
people vote for uh, the leaders in professional societies. Um, mm. The people control the journals. Everyday academics are editors and reviewers. Sure. No, I, I can see. I, I can see that. I'm not. We vote saying, in faculty meetings for different policies and. Right. I'm not saying the the analogy is perfect or it has is like one to one. I'm just saying if we want to understand academia, I, I think we should know what the beliefs of individual professors are. Of course, that's interesting and important. But I do think there can be a difference between the beliefs of most professors and the way academia functions, and that the way academia functions is the more important analytical construct here. So uh, my hypothesis is that people might be wrong about the average person who reads about woke academia may very well be wrong and in fact the average academic may very well be wrong about the average beliefs of the sort of modal professor mm -hmm. however i do not think they are wrong about the way academia functions as a whole so let me but, give you a go ahead no go ahead no go ahead okay so like here here's maybe a different analogy that is actually more worthwhile so let's consider um, making off-color jokes, I don't know, sexually provocative jokes in one's classroom. Mm -hmm. Not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but let's just think about that. So probably very few students would take offense to that. So let's suppose you had a classroom with 30 students and out of the 30 students, three students would be offended if you made some joke, some sexually explicit joke. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, you, if you offended even one student and that student complained, you might get chastised for it. And in fact, mm -hmm. you may, if you continued to do that, lose your job. Now, we could look at the beliefs of individual students and let's say 80% of students, well, let's, let's say 20% of students really liked it. They thought it was funny. It made class more entertaining. 20% of students were really offended by it and 60% of students didn't really care either way. And then we ask a question like, what, is it wise to crack a sexually explicit joke in the classroom? And how do students feel about it? Well, no, it is not wise to crack such a joke and people would be correct to be worried about making a joke even though the average student is not offended by it. So I think that that is what could be happening in academia. I, I I don't think that metaphor works either. And the reason is that the joke isn't making sexually explicit jokes isn't like the central function of teaching. Yeah, no, 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 Whereas no, we're talking about we're talking about we're talking about the legitimacy of science. We're talking about scholars being able to pursue research questions and report data that support research questions. And this is I think the reason academics are really annoyed and scared is because this movement is pushing directly against what was once agreed to be the mission of science uh which is the pursuit of truth and right. so mm -hmm. i don't it, it's it's not something trivial um like my whatever i don't know like if telling sexually explicit jokes is trivial but it's it's not that important uh so i i'm i don't think that metaphor quite works and I think part of the reason, 
something? <laughs> well, I just think you're missing the point, though. I, I, I agree with you that those are very different phenomena. I'm saying we should have different I mean, thresholds. Like maybe 10% of people are against sexually explicit right, jokes. But, but, so we don't tell them because who cares? Like sexually explicit well, jokes are important. But that's a normative claim. I'm, I'm making an analytical claim. My analytical claim is there can be a vast difference between the beliefs of the average person and the way the institution behaves. I, I agree that's, with that. That's the only claim I'm making. Then it's an empirical claim about how much that's true. I, I agree with that, but I think part of the reason academia as an institution is working differently than how it would work if we were having a kind of like majority rules system where all academics uh, pass some kind of blind ballot on, you know, how they want these kinds of issues treated. Like, let's take any particular case when a paper's published and it has a conclusion that, you know, we don't like. It's uh, kind of pushes up against how, however society is trying to progress at the moment. Um, people well, say it's harmful, it's problematic. Uh, anyway, so let's just a conclusion, a socially undesirable conclusion. A paper mm -hmm. comes out. Uh, right. How should that be handled? The majority of, at least of the ones I've surveyed, the majority of, these are, by the way, these are psychology professors, so I shouldn't say academics. The majority of psychology professors think that scientific criticism is the only legitimate way to handle that, and we should just mm -hmm. argue against it, publish a commentary or publish your own paper, collect new data, show why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what the vast majority of psychologists think. Um, mm -hmm. And yet we see uh, in increasing rates, papers are getting retracted um, for, for moral and political concerns, moral concerns more really that it causes harm to vulnerable groups. Um, and mm -hmm. psychologists don't approve of that. If you could get everyone to vote in some kind of blind voting thing, some anonymous thing where people's views wouldn't be known, I think we would say, take the moral claims off the table. Those are not relevant. Is this, I mean, I actually think there's argument to be made that we should take moral claims into consideration. That would be a tricky issue. But as of right now, most people think that those are illegitimate concerns for a scientific paper. And if people voted, we would never suppress psycho psychological science because of moral concerns, okay, but, but we do. do. Yeah, but. I think this is going to be perplexing to somebody unless we're clear about what the disagreement is here. So mm -hmm. we both agree that academia is woke, that it behaves as though it's woke at least, and that if you are inside academia, you might be worried that it's woke. <laughs> and if you're outside of academia and you look at it, you might think academia is woke. So, yeah, so I mean, that's something that I also see in my data is like pretty much everyone in academia is scared of mm -hmm. some kind of social or professional consequences if they were to share not like not their you know offensive personal beliefs publicly but if they were to share their empirical beliefs publicly right um so there's that they would be punished uh either professionally or socially right so there's widespread agreement Mm -hmm. that academia is woke. Now the disagree, yeah. so we agree on that. The disagreement is basically like, what is the cause of the wokeness in academia? 
and would academia be less woke if people knew, if other professors knew people's actual beliefs? That's the question, right? Because I think it would still be woke because I think it functions as an institution and it's different in some sense. It has, we have to analyze it differently than we would analyze the beliefs of the average person in the institution. I think part of the reason it is perceived as woke and it functions as a woke institution, maybe we shouldn't be saying woke, I don't know what we want to call it, but. Uh, Let's call the, it progressive. It's a far extreme progressive or right. something. Right, very progressive. <laughs> I don't want to alienate like reasonable left-wing people. Um, I'm talking well, about like extreme yeah. uh, far left. Um, uh, I think part of the reason it operates that way is precisely because there's a preference falsification problem and that people are creating the false impression that there's a consensus that this is the direction we should be headed in. But most people don't think that. And the illusion of that consensus is what scares people away from stating what they really think. Uh, so it's operating that way because of a, an illusion of a consensus that does not exist. Um, and it's just a problem that continues to like perpetuate itself because um, once some people are too scared to speak up, fewer people are going to, uh, those people then get punished by the sort of vocal minority on the other end, terrifying people further, uh, which creates even greater illusion of consensus. I should say part of this is like, I, 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 have, I haven't analyzed all of my data yet, but one thing we see is a strong correlation between the extent to which professors endorse taboo beliefs, like conclusions in the social sciences that are considered taboo. A lot of these would be like genetic explanations for group differences. People who think uh, those that group differences are genetically caused are much more likely to self-censor their own beliefs. So there's this sort of asymmetry where one side of the spectrum is willing and happy to vocalize their views, uh, to call out other people, and the other side is just staying quiet. And that that gives the, the vocal side more power. Um, and I mean, they've been really successful, <laughs> I think, at creating the illusion that everyone's on their side when uh, I don't think, I think most people are actually against them. Okay, so I don't doubt that some pluralistic, that pluralistic ignorance plays some role in the behavior of non-woke professors. And, in, and I don't doubt that it does encourage or promote some self-censorship. But my contention is that the self-censorship and the restraint, the refraining from talking about one's own empirical views, especially if they are taboo, I think that that's rational. It's a rational response to the way that academia treats people. And I think it's selfish. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it can be rational and selfish, right? That's true. Rationality In fact, often doesn't, being rational. Yeah, exactly. Rationality says nothing about whether it's altruistic or selfish. Point is that academia actually functions as a woke institution. 
I was fired. Other people have been fired. People have had articles retracted. And many people self-censor, self-censor, mm -hmm. quite intelligently so. So the question is, is that because they are ignorant of other professors' beliefs? Or is it because they know what would actually happen to them if they didn't self-censor? It's, it's, I, I, it's, I think of it as a collection, collective action problem. I think if everyone who felt, if everyone simultaneously would say the way they feel about these issues, we couldn't possibly have the severe consequences that there are now when only a handful of people will speak up. This is why I think it's kind of selfish. And I don't want to like throw people under the bus too much because uh, I appreciate all of the people who talk to me and, you know, tell me what they're really thinking and they won't say so publicly. Like I, it, this has contributed to my knowledge on the topic. So I appreciate it. But on the other hand, the fact that all of these people feel this way and won't say so publicly just makes it harder for other people to speak up too and allows this state of affairs to continue where you have this what I really do believe is a vocal minority having a lot of power over the direction that academia is headed in. Relocated. Okay. I don't remember what the... Uh, I was saying how it's a collective action problem and if, mm -hmm. if everyone would speak up together, then I think things could change quite rapidly. But because so many people stay quiet, only like a handful of the bold will say anything and mm -hmm. they get punished because it looks like, oh, there's only a hundred bad apples. <laughs> uh, so we can get rid of all of them. But if it's 70% right. are bad apples, well, you know, maybe they're not as bad as we thought. So I think that that's a complicated hypothesis because for example, let's just take the Walmart analogy, even though you, you don't think it's a particularly good analogy, but let's use it here. Suppose that 80% of Walmart employees, including 80% of the management, wanted Walmart to behave differently. Would it behave differently? And the answer, if they really wanted it to, and they work together, yes, then it would behave differently. So I agree that if 80% of academics or even 60% all got together and said, we don't want it to work this way. We're going to collaborate to make sure that it works a different way. It would work a different way. I guess my claim would be not enough academics care enough to make it different. <laughs> right? I disagree. And I, I don't think, think they care. I just think they're scared. No, no, no. I, I, I think it's it's not ignorance that's causing this, right? It's I mean, I agree that there is some ignorance, right? So I, I don't think people would guess accurately what the average professor's views are, or or maybe they would um, they would think that the average professor is a little bit more supportive of draconian punishments for those. I think people they would drastically overestimate the percentage of people who feel that maybe, way. Maybe they would. But I, I find the claim that actually the majority of professors don't want academia to work the way it does, but it works the way it does, implausible. <laughs> it's, it's a very implausible view. I think most academics think are perfectly like... content with what's happening in academia. 
there is in fact a subset of academics who don't like it and they complain about it. They complain about it both publicly and privately. But my guess is the majority of academics are not that disgruntled by what's happening in academia. I think they are. And I don't think it's apathy. I think it's fear that mm -hmm. is preventing them from speaking up. These people, they've worked like it, becoming an academic is it's a really big commitment, you know, like mm -hmm. you spend whatever time in grad school, the job market's a huge pain in the ass, you move around, you get paid garbage, like mm -hmm. people work really hard and invest a lot of time and energy into this thing. And once you're, I mean, there are plenty of other things you can do if you're a psychology PhD, uh, although there weren't always a ton of other right. things you could do. And, and so it feels like getting booted out of academia or becoming not even booted out, but just being like widely disliked by your peers. Mm -hmm. That is that is a really, really negative outcome for people. Like they right. would why really would want to widely, avoid that. Why would you be widely disliked among your peers if most of your peers actually agree because with you? Because people don't know that. People don't know their peers agree no, with that. No, I know, but they, you still, I, I have people talking to me like about each other thinking the other person is like the super woke person and I know that they're both not uh, and they're scared of each other. Look, they would be friends if they would okay. just like be honest to each other. Let's make a concrete example to think this through. So let's suppose that we have a professor at Harvard and that professor at Harvard writes a paper and in that paper he contends that we shouldn't worry about STEM disparities because the cause of STEM disparities is not prejudice or bias in the system. It's not mm -hmm. widespread misogyny or ubiquitous sexism. Rather, it's intrinsic differences in men and women, mostly not cognitive ability differences, but rather differences in preferences. Mm -hmm. Men prefer to work with things, women prefer to work with people. Now let's suppose mm -hmm. that there, there is this professor and he wrote this, let's not even, we, not only should we not worry about it, he or she might say, but in fact, we should applaud it because it means that people are choosing occupations that they like. <laughs> now, my claim would be that that person would be widely despised by his and her peer or her peers and would face massive and very unpleasant consequences. I think now, if you I take 20% of academics who I'll, I'll use that as my estimate of the people who are driving the charge toward, uh, you know, equity over science, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, if you take 20% of academics and you get them all to go on Twitter and denounce this person or sign a petition, you're going to have thousands of people denouncing this person. It's going to look like a lot of people. What you don't see is the many more thousands who aren't saying anything because they don't want to be the next person with the target on their back. Right, they think they, it's wrong, but they won't say so because they're literally watching this public, you know, shaming happening. And they think if I stand up for this guy, I'm next. But uh, they don't care as much. And it's not that, no, they do care. I mean, not no, all of them. I don't, don't, I don't imply that they all care, uh, but a lot of them do care. And oh, I would but that's guess that's a different question. I said care. They don't care as much. I agree as, that they, as much they, as what 
as much as so let's suppose that you're right and it's 20 percent of people would find this professor repugnant and would want to mm -hmm. denounce the professor and let's even say that the other 80 percent are happy that the professor even if they don't agree with the professor they're happy that the professor made those claims and arguments and they would just like to have judicious debate about it if the 20 percent care let's say an eight out of ten and the other 80 percent care let's say a three out of ten they, they might lose anyway even if you added up all the care on like <laughs> if you imagine some sort of scale and you add the care it may be that their care doesn't triumph over the care of the zealous and ardent minority and that's what i'm saying is that if you have this ardent minority, they may affect the behavior of the institution more, but that behavior from the analytical perspective, from the, from the um, construct of the institution, that's very real. There's nothing illusory about that. That's real institutional behavior and that matters. But I think you are underestimating how much people care. I agree that there is a group of people who I would call these, I mean, you almost could call them like kind of nuanced people. They, they just, th they see all these things as really complicated issues. They think, yeah, like we need academic freedom and we should have open inquiry. Scientists should be able to report data, but I understand like maybe we should consider potential harms and the truth might not always be better. Uh, those people, I would say, it's not that they don't care, but they, see these issues as relatively complex. But there is a, I believe, larger group of people who care a lot and they are opposed to the 20% of the woke. And I'll give an example of one of the questions we asked in our survey. Um, I think it was, what do you think of, it was something along the lines of, what do you think of scholars who start petitions or Twitter campaigns to get paper, papers retracted for moral reasons, they cite moral concerns, like these results could harm, uh, or they, they could like affirm stereotypes of vulnerable groups or something like that. Uh, the modal response on a 100 point sliding scale from maximum contempt to maximum admiration and respect, the modal response was zero, maximum contempt. Um, there were almost no people who had maximum admiration respect. There were a lot of people on the fence, like right up the middle, but most people were on the lower end of the scale. Most people dislike these people and a lot of people hate them, like hate them. Um, and you don't, to, to my, my, my view of academia, not looking at these data is people, are totally down with these people who start these petitions and Twitter campaigns. They, they don't dislike them and more people support them than oppose them. But I think no, way more people oppose them. It's just those are the people who stay quiet. Again, because not because they don't care, but because they're afraid, because they have everything to lose. This is their, their whole life, their whole career, every, all, the whole investment they've made in their career. If is, let, let me could ask, be lost. Let me ask this then. If your contention is true, then why doesn't academia work the opposite way? That is to say, why isn't it the case 
that those who attempt to thwart academic freedom and attempt to curtail free inquiry are denounced, derogated, insulted, humiliated even, maybe even fired. And those who promote academic freedom and inquiry, why aren't they lauded and given jobs at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford, <laughs> right? I mean, you that's a good question. You have to explain I... that to me. And I think that the answer- Do I have to? <laughs> well, if you're going to make I think this it's point, been a slow change. I think it's been happening over What happened decades. to Arthur Jensen in the 60s? I'm told I mean, it was pretty unpleasant. <laughs> right. I, I agree with you that it's been a slow change, but I don't think that even the 70s were a paradise of academic freedom. No, I At least I, I specifically when, when considering uh, taboo um, claims about group differences. There were particular the things that have become more sensitive over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, sub I suspect those became sensitive. Oh, I think this earbud just turned off or did it just turn on? Will you say something? Um, yeah. Ah, shit. Now I'm gonna have to do two cuts. Okay, so you're making, you're making this claim about gradually changing academia. Yeah, I think uh, issues, at, you know, they, they become sensitive and then, I mean, Things like race and gender have been sensitive for a really long time. Those are the things yes. that are still really sensitive right now. Yes. But I think as more people have gotten on board with the being sensitive about these issues, mm -hmm. um, it 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 starts to affect other areas. Like, you know, I don't know at what point pretty much everyone was on board with let's not discriminate on the basis of of race or gender on mm -hmm. anything important like hiring decisions or um, uh, like criminal justice decisions, those kinds of things. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know at what point everyone got on board with with that, um, but once you have that, it can start, the sensitivity can start affecting other areas of decision-making. And mm -hmm. at some point it might start to affect decision-making in the realm of science in terms of like, what questions should we even be allowed to ask what questions should we be allowed to report data on? Uh, and I, I, I can't, I don't know exactly when, I don't think we had academic freedom ever. Uh, I think the issues we didn't have academic freedom about probably have changed a little bit over time. For example, mm -hmm. I suspect I people who studied sex received a lot more pushback, you know, 50, 70 years ago. <laughs> Whereas now sex is pretty much not taboo at all anymore. You can say right. just about anything you want. Right. Um, so it's changed. Um, yeah. Kinsey would it's... not be shocking to our sensibilities. No. Right. People love that shit now. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I guess I don't, I don't, I don't know. There's no point in time when it happened. It's been a slow change. Um, Okay, but do you have think people that ever it would been be... admired for supporting academic freedom? Yeah, I mean, some people still are. Right, but this is my point. Is John that Haidt the... is beloved by many. Right, but my point is just that like the, others, the, but... the, um, it's just objectively the case 
that the Harvard professor who made the claim that genes were partially causally responsible for, say, group differences mm-hmm. would act, that would tank, absolutely obliterate his or her career. Just annihilation, poof, gone. Okay. Now, the, then w- the question we're asking is why would it do that? And what you're saying is, if I understand you correctly, is that the reason it would do that is because there is this small minority, maybe even like a, 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 a larger minority, but definitely a minority of zealots, mm-hmm. say 10 to 20% of people who attempt to enforce their ideology through derogation, public shaming, uh, and professional uh, career consequences up to and including firing if they can, mm-hmm. if they can, right? Mm-hmm. And, and article retraction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that actually the majority of people don't like those people mm-hmm. and they like academic freedom and they support academic freedom strongly, but somehow they always lose to this minority because they're ignorant. And I find that incredibly implausible. Because they're ignorant <laughs> and fearful. Right, but I would if, say, if, pe- if, like, not many people, not many people would be uh, supportive of a scientist who wanted to like assert that there were genetic causes for group differences. Most people would think that person was wrong, mm-hmm. um, but most people would still support his right or her right to test those questions and report those data, even though they wouldn't like the conclusions or agree with the conclusions. So I agree. Let's, so let's be like, but they wouldn't want to see that person fired. I don't think. But but let's be clear about the the claims that we're making. Cause Mm Mike, I agree with you. I think privately the majority of professors do not think that what let's call it a guy let's just make it john doe john Mm -hmm. doe claims genes are partially responsible for group differences i agree with you that the majority of professors would not want john doe fired and in fact the majority would claim that they support his academic freedom to publish those ideas and have that debate i think there's a minority privately privately they would say that yes i think there's a ardent minority (laughs) of Mm flamethrowers who would want to torch John Doe's career and would do everything in their power to do so. So let's say that's 10 to 20%. -hmm. Now, my claim is that the reason the institution acts the way it does is because that 10 to 20%, they care a heck of a lot more than the other people. And because of that, they have much more influence over how the institution works. And in fact, many of the people who privately would support John Doe's academic freedom probably are reluctant about those ideas. And they're like, you know, I'm not too sure about it. So it's not that big of a deal to me if John Doe gets in trouble for what he's saying. That's my claim. That's my hypothesis. I agree that the minority, uh, the vocal minority, cares a lot and they they are happy to you know out themselves as members of that vocal minority and sign whatever petitions and tweet about it uh um because they they don't have anything to fear right they're Um, proud of it they are they are uh and people on the other side 
are uh, more, so there's, on the one hand, you have the conflict where these are people who do support academic freedom, but also disagree with a lot of the ideas they would support academic freedom for. Yes. Um, so it's not like all of their beliefs and views are uh, perfectly coherent and pleasant. It's not like uh, right. supporting academic freedom doesn't always feel good um, right. because that means that you have to support academic freedom for things that you think are wrong or even right. maybe morally questionable. Um, right. So that's a problem. Um, but I, I mean, maybe we're not fully disagreeing. Maybe we're just disagreeing on kind of like the degrees of this. So uh, I think depending on the issue, academics who do care about academic freedom will care more or less about it in particular cases. Oh, I agree with uh, and that. in like the the cases that most conflict with their own beliefs, they probably are a little bit less supportive. Right, um, so but also in those cases, because it conflicts with their beliefs, the majority of people actually do like take, I mean, we would have to look at a particular like genetic contribution to some group difference, but like the majority of people disagree with that. Um, then defending that scholar creates the impression that not only are they supporting academic freedom, but they're supporting an idea that most people think is wrong. I don't, I don't think that's right. So let me give you a different concrete example to see what you think about it. So okay. imagine that there's a professor at Harvard who openly advocates libertarian economic policies. He, mm -hmm. again, we'll call him, uh, no, we'll call it, it's, it's a she, Jane Doe. So okay. Jane, Jane Doe is a social psychologist who's a very well-known libertarian, mm -hmm. right? Jane Doe gets fired. Mm -hmm. Now, I will guarantee you if Jane Doe got fired simply for advocating, say, 10% tax rates, there would be a massive cacophony of complaint about that. And the reason there would be is because at that point, the, the majority of people who support academic freedom, tepidly in other cases, would support it uh blazingly right they they would be white hot in support but doesn't that show you that it's fear because no, it's particularly it it for these taboo areas care. it shows you it's how much do they care so in, in but this why would why would if people care about academic freedom why would they care a lot in that case and not in the case of like a genuinely taboo belief because or empirical in, in, conclusion, rather. Because I think a lot of these people who who would be incandescent with rage if Jane Doe got fired for her mm -hmm. libertarian beliefs, even if they strongly disagreed with libertarianism, mm -hmm. in in the case of John Doe, they actually think maybe John Doe's going a little bit too far, and maybe that's not something they do want to promote. And at any rate, it's not that important to them if John Doe's in academia. Whereas they would be. Yeah, but this is confounded with like how taboo the conclusion is and how much trouble you would get in for supporting it. Like, I agree. I think probably most academics aren't libertarians, but no one Definitely. really cares about it. Like, no one is offended by libertarianism. I agree. Um, it's well, no, not no, no. a sensitive some, some issue. People are. Maybe take, some people, okay, but most well, people take, aren't. It's not a sensitive a issue. It's like oh, if someone well, said, no, like, <laughs> Wait, but it, it, issues are taboo because people care about them. And that's my point is that the zealous, the zealous flamethrowers 
care a lot more than the other people. And when they do care a lot more, you get the, the institution there, behaves in ways that reflect that. But there's another side to this, which is that <clears throat> if people are supporting academic freedom mm -hmm. and they're trying to defend academic freedom, what mm -hmm. is the worst they can do to someone who's trying to interfere with academic freedom? They can say, I disagree with you. You could they fire can't, the person. No, you can't. Because they, they should be free to argue against academic freedom. They should be free to oppose no, certain kinds like of like a, That's like a popper's paradox thing. Like, I think it's, I think the people who support academic freedom. Now, I know there are like certain people, and I think particularly people outside of academic freedom, who are like pro-academic freedom people, and they'll support firing people who challenge academic freedom. But most people in academia that I know that are pro-academic freedom would never petition to get someone fired, pretty much no matter what, and like, except for things like, you know, like having sex with your students, like things that are... Right. I'm not saying they, sh they would. I'm not making it, I'm not even making a normative claim, although I would say an institution doesn't have to have people in it who violate the norms of the institution. So I don't think it's a violation of academic freedom to fire somebody who's attempting to undermine that very norm. Whether you personally <laughs> think that or not, I do right. think that it would look hypocritical for people who defend academic freedom to try to fire people for challenging academic freedom. And so I, I think, think they won't do it. At all. And so, well, maybe you don't think so, but I, I think that would be the concern. And I think that's why people don't do it. So it's really like people who are bringing bombs and people who are like, no, well, don't do that. <laughs> okay, but, but then again, why is it that we both agree that in the case of Jane Doe's firing, mm -hmm. there would be massive outpouring of anger and, and righteous essays about how it was morally despicable for Harvard or whatever university to fire her. You agree with that, right? Whereas if you got fired because you said that genes play a partial role in group differences in, say, cognitive ability or something, you would not have that. That's my point. Yeah, but there's a confound here. Well, there are several confounds. One is, uh, like, how much do people think the conclusion is false? I mean, libertarianism is sure. almost more of an opinion than an empirical conclusion. Uh, okay, but you so, know that I can make a, 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 an opinion that would get somebody fired and nobody would defend it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, okay. any, I'm saying that these are all confounded with multiple things. One is, how much does defending this idea put a target on my back? Of course, anything that's more taboo, people are going to be more terrified to defend. I agree now, with that, I could all... imagine the most like, the like the the strongest proponent for academic freedom might not support like certain kinds of empirical conclusions. Like, you know, like I guess anything defending pedophilia is not mm -hmm. is pretty much universally frowned upon, and I don't mm -hmm. think many people would stand up to defend someone who did defend that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so so I, I agree with you that like one reason people don't stand up for academic freedom is because they don't care, especially in particular cases where they're like, not only is this empirically wrong and we've known it forever, uh, but it's also harmful. Um, but there there is a confound there, which is also how much uh, 
trouble could I get in for defending academic freedom in this particular case? Uh, I, um, I agree and, with and, that, and I'm not but... saying like, I'm saying in different cases, people will have different reasons. My, my mm -hmm. only argument is that there is a substantial uh, group of academics who would defend certain research agendas and certain mm -hmm. researchers mm -hmm. who don't mm -hmm. because of two reasons. One, they're afraid of the vocal minority and two, mm -hmm. they think the vocal minority is actually a majority and I'm mm -hmm. saying it's not. A right, majority. okay, so that, that's... But, but I'm not saying that there aren't other reasons sure. that people, even someone who says, I'm, I'm pro-academic freedom, certainly there would be cases where a scholar would do something or say something where you might be like, okay, well, you know, right. <laughs> draw the line somewhere. So I think that's helpful. So, so let's take your two reasons. And be, because what I, my claim is that it's, it's mostly um, re reason one is more motivating than reason two. So I don't think it's, I agree with you, again, to be clear, I do think there is some pluralistic ignorance. I do think professors are unaware of the opinions of other professors, and probably they're unaware of how supportive of academic freedom a lot of professors would be. I agree mm -hmm. with that. I don't, however, think that that's much of the motivator for this. I think the motivator is, as you said, because they're afraid of what would happen to them, which is very real. And also, I think there's just, they actually sniff the unsavoriness of the idea. And they're like, you know, I don't actually know if I care enough to defend this. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think imagine, that's, a, example, that's a big somebody, part of it, is that. Yeah, so imagine somebody who's, who's like ACLU, well, what ACLU used to be, like a civil mm -hmm. libertarian fire <laughs> yeah maybe would be reluctant to say to champion the cause of a confessed child killer right might think you know you really need to you know defense rights i advocate for the defense but you know what this person killed 32 children i'm not really sure that i want to go public and advocate for that person's defense I think that is a lot of what's going on. And I don't think it's the, I, I think even if people knew the views of 70 to 80% of professors were roughly pro-academic freedom, it wouldn't change people's behavior. I think it wouldn't change their behavior in certain cases, but I think it would change their behavior in others. And I think it would change their like, their, um, you know, like I, Okay, it could actually change a little bit of what people are willing to study if they knew that a lot of their peers wouldn't hate them for studying certain things. But at minimum, I think it would change who they're willing to support and what topics they're willing to support. Um, and even pushing back against like certain uh, policies that are changing like in journals where we'll consider potential harms in our decisions to publish or we'll consult with the group that this research is about before we agree to publish anything. Um, I think people would be more willing to push back on those kind of broad uh, abstract issues surrounding academic freedom, even if they weren't willing to uh, support certain scholars who really did cross a line. Um, and I think what you have is 
you have a an asymmetry in that there are I mean, I don't, it's possible that I have like a biased perception of this. I was going to say, I don't think there are really consequences for the scholars who try to get other scholars fired. Now, I do think there are social consequences. I, I would be willing to bet anyone who is willing to lead the charge against these academics. I'm sure plenty of people say nasty things to them. So that's, that can be hard. I don't want to downplay that. But are there institutional consequences for these people? No. I don't are. think so. Right, so these people are taking almost no risk at all by attacking one of their peers. Right. Whereas you really are taking a risk when you defend yeah, one of your peers. I agree. So there's a there's a there's a like one group can kind of be extreme. And maybe even in cases where they're not sure if this person should be fired, support yeah. it because who cares? Nothing bad's gonna happen to me if I support this. Whereas on the other end, you might say, oh, I really do support this person, but um, I can't do so publicly. And I'm sure you're probably aware of this more than anyone. There are people who support you who would never say so publicly. Um, and that asymmetry inevitably creates a sort of biased perception of what is the, the truly socially costly position to hold. So these people. No, I, I, but that's, that's, that, that step there is an illegitimate step. <laughs> so it, I agree that there's this asymmetry. We both agree about this. And we both agree that those who would explicitly argue that you should besmirch the professional reputation of somebody who forwards views that are scientifically argued but taboo mm -hmm. that's a minority who thinks you should be you should engage in that kind of behavior in fact it's probably a substantial minority. it's a minority that people think that you should like do ad hominem attacks against people yes. who okay yes that i think it's a yeah, substantial minority however it is just objectively the case that the institution punishes people who forward taboo ideas and that that asymmetry is real and it's not a bias for me to recognize that asymmetry and to behave accordingly that's what I, i'm saying uh i'm no so i'm i'm, I'm not saying that it's a bias to right. so what's the bias to the perceived no i was saying that i might be biased and that i might under appreciate no, no, you, you made this leap from there's this asymmetry and then you said therefore people are biased about their views of something and i'm saying they're not biased they're actually responding to real incentives they're, no 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 so i i agree with you that they're responding to real incentives as they exist now mm -hmm. based on popular perceptions of what people think about these issues i'm saying those popular perceptions are wrong right so and that they would change if we got really clear better data on what people thought about these issues and i think the institutions themselves might become a little bit um i don't want to say bolder but i think they would they would swing back a little bit more toward the academic freedom side if they realized you know, 85% of our faculty think that scholars should never be fired for drawing like uh, socially undesirable research conclusions in papers that report data. Um, I, I think, think people if they knew that, they wouldn't take these 
petitions as seriously as they do now. Now they take them very seriously. Um, I think this is- And they almost always feel like they have to take some kind of action if there's a petition against one of To me, this would be like saying, if this politician who keeps winning these elections actually knew that most people have a negative opinion of him or her, he or she would change his, his or her behavior. No, because the incentive that matters for a politician is not how well liked are you? It is, do you win the election, right? But Similarly, I'm talking about- The incentive something... that matters for, an, for a professor or for a journal mm-hmm. is what materially and reputationally happens to you when you do something. But what I'm saying is if everyone knew the way everyone else felt, Mm-hmm. then more people would be willing to speak up on the other side. More people would be willing to say, no, we need to get the people who are interfering with academic freedom out. Those mm-hmm. people are the people who don't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes costly to be those people, yeah, which right very... now it's not costly at all. Mm-hmm. And then um, more people on the defending side. So I know if I study a taboo, if I make some kind of empirical conclusion that people aren't going to like, if I know, hey, 85% of my peers have my back, 10% are going to hate me. Okay. Um, I think if people were more aware of that, the incentives would change. And that's kind of the point of this exploration is if we can show people that that their peers aren't on the side that they think they are, um, then that should give people more courage to be willing to share their own views on these issues publicly, which then changes the incentives. Uh, and then the majority actually could be victorious. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that this is like the fantasy of the politician who tells the truth. I'm so, a dreamer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you and John Lennon are dreamers. <laughs> And the the hard-headed realist just looks at the behavior of the institution and is pretty skeptical about what would happen if people knew the private beliefs of individuals. So I, I bet if you gave people... Well, it would have to be private beliefs that are turned into action. You still have a collective action problem. Even if I knew 85% right, but... of people are on my side, but I knew only 5% are going to say right, so but... publicly then what good is it having 85% of people on my side? But the people really, need to come together uh, and, you know. Right, but the really important thing is the asymmetry in, in concern about these things. So if you imagine being in a faculty meeting and suppose that you can say something that 80% of people will agree with, but 20% of people will absolutely abhor. Mm-hmm. Or you can say something that 30% of people will agree with, but everybody else will be pretty indifferent to. Well, you this can- This is reminding me of the time at Durham where we tried to vote to change the menu to vegetarian. The people who wanted the sausage rolls <laughs> really wanted the sausage rolls. And there were right. only like five of them. <laughs> right. But God damn it, they want those sausage rolls. Right, and you can see, And so we didn't move to a vegetarian. <laughs> right, and, and groups are not, the, the behavior of an institution, actually this is often good, I think, by the way, the behavior of an institution is, is not determined by the modal belief of the person in the institution. 
it's determined by the amount of care and concern people have and certain kinds of norms, et cetera. But if- But that's really, I mean, I agree with you that that's how things work a lot of the time, but I don't think that's the optimal way things should work. But that just means the person who throws the biggest fit has the most power. Um, Okay, but like, let me give you an example where this is good. Like I could throw a bigger fit. (laughs) Right, no, I I agree. You kind of get like the- I could try to get people fired. <laughs> right, the proverbial heck, heckler's veto, right? The person who cares and shouts a lot, shuts everything down. Yeah. That can be a problem. It ruins it for everyone. Right, but there are lots of things uh, for which the minority view is actually the better view, and it's good that society, uh, that the behavior of the institution is determined by the minority view. Take, for example, the criminal justice system. I suspect that the majority of people would like to torture and <laughs> absolutely lacerate, say, a child killer, would, would, would want him to face much greater punishment than he does. A lot of these Maybe. things, freedom of speech, for example, a lot of these like things that came out of the Enlightenment, they were promoted and championed by a minority of people. Um, yeah, but I think probably those minorities, we want them to win when they win via persuasion of other people and not when they terrify other people into well, ter- silence. Well, terrifying people is a, is a variant of persuasion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm not sure. I mean, you're, pers- you're persuading people to, to comply, but you're not persuading them to get on board with whatever your philosophy well, or mission. Sure. Or- so, so these are difficult normative questions. I, I guess the, the, more, the empirical claim that I'm making. Certainly, is- it's not always true that you want the minority calling the shots. Oh, and oh, probably more sure. often you don't, but sometimes obviously you do. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't know how to adjudicate that. It's complicated. I'm, I'm not claiming that the minority should always call the shots, of course. I, I'm just saying that my, my empirical claim here is that this, the, the woke behavior of academia is not primarily propelled by pluralistic ignorance. It's propelled by the outsized influence of an ardent minority. And the reason that ardent minority has an outsized influence, and the reason that there is this asymmetry is because they care more. And Um, I don't think much would change. So let's say we say, hey, turns out 80% of people champion absolute freedom of inquiry. mm -hmm. Okay, if those 20% are willing to throw a bigger fit get people fired, damage their reputations, et cetera, that doesn't matter. The only thing that would change that is if the 80% started to care more. Um, I agree that if the 80% cared more, that would help. But I also think that there is, um, I, I also think that if people were more aware of the majority opinion, then their fear would decrease a little bit. And then that could be the thing that motivates more people to speak up and more people speaking up inevitably motivates other people to speak up. uh, And it deals with, to some degree, the fear issue. Now, I'm not saying fear is the only reason um, people don't defend uh, academic freedom, but I do think it is a big reason. Do I want to say it's the biggest reason? 
Um, because I don't know how we would empirically test it, I'll say yes. <laughs> oh, I, 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 <laughs> I think it's the biggest reason is that people are afraid of this vocal minority who will uh, go after people who defend academic freedom with everything they've got and not even have any concern for proportionate punishment for publishing a taboo research. It's your mm -hmm. career should be over and no one ever should hire you again. Um, yeah, I think fear, I, I agree with you that fear, it, it might be the chief motivator or the chief deterrent here. I, I guess I would just ask to imagine this hypothetical faculty meeting again. And again, just think about, suppose that you want to say something, you don't care that much about it, but you do believe it, mm -hmm. right? Like say you believe, uh, let's just... <laughs> Let's just make this weird world in which people get really exercised about soda. And so there's a debate about should there be soda in the machines? Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there's been a movement to replace all soda with water because of concerns with obesity. Mm -hmm. And let's say that 10% of people really care about this issue and they think it's an abomination to put soda in the machines. Mm -hmm. And let's suppose that you, but, but let's suppose most other people think, you know, it should be up to individuals, buy what you want, but not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Now, suppose that you think, you know, I think if you want to buy an A&W root beer, you should be able to, but I don't care that much. And you could say, I want, I think we should put soda in the machines. Most people would agree with you, but 10% of people would really hate you for that. And maybe 1% of them would attempt to assault you physically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can see it's what would happen. a good reason to assault someone. <laughs> even if you knew how many people agreed with you, even if you knew, look, most people agree with me and I could find these people and we could talk about it rationally, it would be perfectly reasonable for you to avoid saying that given the outsized concern of the 10% of people who think it's a morally righteous But crusade. don't you think the sort of mature uh, solution there would be, let's say it's a faculty of 40 people, so there are four people who really want to get rid of the soda, mm -hmm. say, okay, you four present your case to the rest of us and then we'll take a vote. And they can either persuade them or not. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a that's a normative claim, and and that's th but that just seems like pretty reasonable to me. Rather than like let well, we these four scream at the top of their lungs for the entire faculty meeting, and sure. then say, you know what, you guys seem to care a lot. Let's get rid of the soda. <laughs> sure, I I mean I don't I don't dispute that. It, it, uh, Extremists can be spectacularly obnoxious. Of course, yes, they, they can, can also be celebrated as, you know, moral visionaries who attempted to true. make change before it was popular. Mm -hmm. But they can be incredibly nettlesome. That's a, that's a separate debate, which would be a very interesting one. But the debate here is, is it pluralistic ignorance that's driving the behavior, the self-censoring. And mm -hmm. I don't think it is. And I think we can use this example. You don't think it is at all? No, no, no. Don't I, think I, I think it is somewhat, but I, I don't think it would matter much either way. And I think we can use this example of the faculty meeting to illustrate the point, because we can imagine a case in which 
the, perf the person has no ignorance. The person's fully aware that 90% of people agree with him or her and that only 10% disagree. And yet it would be rational not to make the point because the 10% really, really, really care and the 90% don't care that much. But who's more likely to say something? The person who thinks 80% of the people are on the side of the four who are screaming at the top of their lungs or mm -hmm. someone who knows it's just these four and everyone else agrees with me. Like who's more likely to push back and say, hey, you know, let's consider what more people think than just oh, before. Right, I agree. So I, to be clear, I'm not saying that pluralistic ignorance plays zero causal role in this situation. Maybe it's 5% of the cause. I'm just saying it's not the predominant cause. It's not that important. And I think it's definitely bigger than 5%. I don't know what percent I would put on it though. Um, but I do think in terms of in terms of getting people to push back against what I see as the direction the behavioral sciences are headed in, which is further toward the let's regulate scientific conclusions that we don't like, that don't mm -hmm. uh, support our social justice agenda, that mm -hmm. science is done, here are the truths that we want to elevate. Mm -hmm. um, I see it headed that way in the in the future, even more than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, in terms of things that could prevent that from happening, mm -hmm. I think shining light on the fact that it is a vocal minority is probably one of our best chances for, you know, swinging things back the other direction. I like think what else would it work? is trying to persuade people that Because that's been going so well. <laughs> no, I don't think anything will work. But I think if we're looking at the menu of bad meals, as it were. <laughs> I actually do. The other thing I think is if they become more extreme, their vocal minority will shrink because it's getting too far. Yeah, possibly. They'll lose more support. And then, but this related to what the I'm saying. The way to think here. of it is we're in an atrocious restaurant. We made a bad decision on the way to the restaurant <laughs> and now we're there and we have a menu of bad meals. And the, the question is, which is the least bad meal? My view is the least bad the French view fries is to yeah always go for the potatoes. My view is the least bad is to attempt to persuade some people who are currently in that ten percent or twenty percent of the ardent minority that they're wrong to be in that group. Now I don't know how efficacious that would be. But look, just to make this clear, I think- here, If we can here, get that 10% to turn on each other. <laughs> right, exactly, that's Which right. Or, or if we can shrink it from 10% to 6%, right? Yeah. Maybe that would have a significant effect. But just to-, to But a, I think even like if people knew that the majority of people were against these people then it oh. would make it more costly for them no, like no, at no, least no. for them to know it's socially costly if it's not institutional like it's but not going to harm not their social. career let's make it a, is these let, people okay, don't so know how me, much people dislike okay, them. let me make it <laughs> let me take it here's a concrete example so in so what we're talking about are incentives of reputational incentives mm -hmm. social incentives likes dislikes let's mm -hmm. turn it into monetary incentives just to make it very clear 
So let's suppose that, again, we're in this faculty meeting and that if you say this thing, 90% of people will give you a quarter because they like it and they're like, here's a quarter. That I, Good for you for saying that. So 90% of people will give you a quarter, but 10% of people will beat you and take $10 <laughs> from you, right? So 90%, they give you the quarters, 10%, each of them take $10 from you. Now you mm -hmm. can see that the incentive, even though most people agree with you, and even if you knew no, most people would agree with you, so much so, in fact, that they would give you a quarter and say, good job, sport. It's still irrational to actually make that claim. But again, because, because people don't know what the majority think. They don't no. know how much they're wait. being hated. Like but, they but, think, no, whoa, 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 well, wait, I started wait, this wait, petition. Wait, wait, I wait, let's stop here, though. Okay, stop. I, I agree with you. Hold on just for a second. You can go on that and I'm happy to listen to it, but let's just stop. To, I just want to make it clear that in my hypothetical example, would you agree that even if you're not pluralistically ignorant, it's perfectly rational not to do what the majority agrees with? I agree that it can be okay, rational. That's all not I want. Yeah, that's all I want to point out. Now, <laughs> what you're say. I was going to say I think the pluralistic ignorance makes it so people don't see the costs to their behavior. Okay, so, I see what you're saying. So I'm saying like I might I let's say I try to get the scholar fired, I start a petition, mm -hmm. I gain a lot of status in my group of 10% of people um, mm -hmm. because I led the charge on this important issue. Mm -hmm. I get the person fired, I won the day. What right. I don't see is 70% of my peers now hate me with a fiery passion. Uh, and that's a social cost I'm not, I am paying, but I have no idea I'm paying it because yeah, I these people aren't telling me they hate me. They're just sitting there going, I hope she doesn't come for me next. <laughs> I, I just think that that is, that real, okay, so to be fair. Maybe 70% is an exaggeration. Yeah, I, I, like, I get your point. Okay, whatever. so. An, a, 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 a chunk you would care about of people, of your peers hating you. Right, but your argument relies upon an incredibly stupid social animal. Because what you're saying is, People are actually really bad at knowing what will happen to them socially if they say X, Y, or Z. It Not was, always, but in, a, no, but in, a, in, in an case, environment where a lot of right, people are self-censoring, yes. And a lot of people but, are self-censoring. So you're saying, like, it, to, to be clear in this, pay, to make this more concrete in this payment example, what you're saying is people think that um, there is, they won't have to pay a price for doing this, but in fact, they are paying a big price. It's just a private price because there are people who think, you know, John, uh, I'm trying to think of a name that doesn't refer to an actual specific individual. So let's just say Dr. Smith. So, so actually privately, a bunch of people are like, Dr. Smith's an asshole. Mm -hmm. He's a self-righteous smug asshole and I don't like him. And what mm -hmm. you're saying is, well, Dr. Smith doesn't know how many people think that. Mm -hmm. All he sees are the, the woke people who are celebrating him. Mm -hmm. and therefore, okay, but one thing is, isn't that true for most of us? That is to say, like, a lot of people have opinions about us. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what they are. And oh, it's I know. <laughs> okay. I well. know a lot of people hate me. 
Right, I know a lot. I don't of know. People. I know what percentage. <laughs> I I just, I just assume everyone hates me until they tell me otherwise. I, I just don't think. I think it's perfectly rational not to. If you're if you're Doctor Smith, and you went on this quasi jihad against a professor who was promoting research that you thought was not only wrong but immoral and beyond the pale, and a lot of people privately think you're kind of a jerkweed. But mm -hmm. publicly, you get a lot of support and, and uh, mm -hmm. reward for it. And in fact, your institution rewards you for it, or at least it doesn't punish you for it. I don't think that's irrational. Um, I'm not saying it's irrational. I'm saying, okay, well, what, I'm saying that revealing the genuine preferences and beliefs of academics mm -hmm. changes the calculus for these people, or it should anyway. Uh, you don't want to lose the respect of 40% of your colleagues, mm -hmm. um, or assume most people don't. And even if, you, uh, even if you don't know that that's happening, you wouldn't want it to happen. But once you do know it's happening, that changes your cost-benefit analysis. If what you're saying is true, then why mm -hmm. is it the case that academic institutions are becoming more and more woke and that more and more woke people are winning prestigious positions at them? Because everyone is scared of the vote. No, 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 but a lot of these votes are private. These votes are not um, public votes. No, the, I mean, the outcomes are never private. People I, publicly- No, 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 I didn't say the outcome. Obviously, the, like, <laughs> almost by definition, the outcomes are public. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the votes are private. When you vote- well, Give me the, like an example. So like who's winning president of SPSP, for example? Who's, we will see. I don't know. <laughs> okay, right. But who's winning prestigious awards for research, for early career research, et cetera? Well, I don't know that there are any. Inhabiting I don't know that there are any. I mean, the president of SPSP, for example, is a public vote. Um, I don't think the awards are. I think the awards are a small panel of people. So you're not going to see the majority opinion in those kinds of things. You will see... Um, with, for okay, example, SPSP, but like your choices, I mean, okay, it, different societies have different choices every year, but here's often you're choosing between like a, a woke person and a woker person. Okay, well, here's a concrete example though. It, reviewers are private. Yeah. Why is it that well, it's- Well, not really. The editor sees what you say. Okay, so the editor sees it, but it's private in that, you know, like the rest of the, the psychology or the academic community does not see it. Mm -hmm. Why is it the case that it is so hard mm -hmm. to get an article that violates these taboos through the review process? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I would say that people are probably still scared of what would happen if people found out that they were a reviewer on a paper that got published, which isn't okay. beyond question that that could happen. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair. Even well, I, you I'm might skeptical, but that's a fair confess hypothesis. at some point. Um, <laughs> right. It was me. <laughs> um, yeah. And the editors, the editors actually are always public. So if this mm -hmm. paper gets published, and the editor is the only one really who has the final call. The reviewers could say this paper has these flaws because all papers have flaws. Um, and the editor says these flaws are devastating because the editor's sure. name would go on the article. I don't know if all journals publish the editor's name on the article, but I do think it's probably the most of the time that's true. 
Sure. Uh, no, I agree with. That's I, not to say I haven't had plenty of hostile reviews. Right. That's what I'm saying is like, I think most of the time these articles are quashed. It's by the reviewers, not by the editor. I mean, I'm sure there are mm -hmm. cases in which the editor exercises his or her discretion and quashes it. Or, or, yeah, I mean, or, I agree with you that it. that's a good point, though. Like, the reviewers at least shouldn't feel... Right. They, they should, should mostly reveal their genuinely held preferences. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, that's a fair point. Um, I, I don't I, think that completely undercuts what I'm saying, but... Um, and, I mean, it's hard, too, because most people who... I guess most people who don't support academic freedom, according to like my definition of it, mm -hmm. probably a lot of them would say that they do. Um, That's right. That's right. Because people are very good at coming up with scientific justifications for why research they dislike shouldn't be published. So right. they're, so they they're rarely say... saying like, this paper should never see the light of day because I don't like it and it violates my political views. <laughs> they say because it used a convenient sample and it only looked or, at uh, this one measure of the thing. It didn't define this variable in the right. way they should have. Um, right. No, what, what also what they would say is, well, look, we, in the same way that we don't need creationist biologists, yeah. We don't need racist psychologists, right? So they, they, would, they would say, like, of course I support academic freedom for ideas that are even remotely plausible, mm -hmm. for these other hateful ideas that have been rejected but, for 50 to 100 years. Yeah, we shouldn't pursue that. But I do think there's something interesting happening there because, I mean, depending on what idea we're talking about, uh, there would be an assumption that everyone who knows what they're talking about agrees with me um yes but and on most of these taboo issues or i shouldn't say i say on a, at least of the ones that i've been looking at there isn't much consensus around what is true and what is false so to assert that this is scientific quackery and everyone's agrees that it's this is bullshit and has for decades right. a lot of the time people are wrong they're assuming I Other agree people with believe you. what they believe. And right, the solution to, to that is showing that not everyone believes what they believe. <laughs> right, but to be clear about that, that's just a, that's just a, 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 a sort of intrinsic human bias. Humans tend to think that more people feel yeah. the same way they do. Yeah. Right. So, so that, does that explain some human behavior? Maybe. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of that. I think humans human social behavior tends to be pretty rational when you think in terms of real incentives. Now, I agree with but you. But I would say rational with the information they have available to them at the time. Oh, I, I agree with that. And I'm suggesting I, they are missing an important piece of information. Right. And I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And it's clearly the case that, for example, dictators and authoritarian regimes work really hard mm -hmm. to create pluralistic ignorance. Mm -hmm. But I also think that if you look at the literature, say even on Joseph Stalin, one of the things that modern scholars have found is that a lot more people actively supported the regime and collaborated with it, or at least supported its goals, 
than maybe was previously assumed and that a lot of other people just didn't care. Their but life how many wasn't people supported out of fear? Right. No, no that's, that's the I'm not question, saying that, right? not saying in some sense, it almost doesn't matter how many supported out of fear. Sure. And how many were true believers. Although, I mean, right. I think it does matter. Um, and it matters if people knew that. Like, if I knew other people supporting a cause that I don't actually support, but I support, like, if I knew they didn't support it too, mm -hmm. that would potentially embolden me to stop supporting it. Um, right. But I think about this, like, suppose that you, you live in a, in a city during the reign of Stalin. And suppose that you knew 80% of the people in the city actually kind of disliked Stalinism. Would that change your behavior? And my answer is probably not, because even though those 80% might not like Stalinism, and, they, and I'm not saying academia is equivalent to Stalinism, I'm just using this as an analogy, and actually it, it sort of makes my case even more so, if 80, if you knew 80% of people kind of disliked Stalin and Stalinism, so long as that didn't actually change the way the 20% behaved and the behavior of the regime itself, it would be idiotic, right? If it, if to, it changed the way the 80% behaved, if right, that's what awareness I, I, of the 80%, it, it might not, but that's why right, that's that's, I'm saying it's a collective action problem. Like step one let people know which what what the majority thinks on the issue mm -hmm. and then step two is once the majority knows that they're in the majority mm -hmm. now they have a new level of power that they could act on if they wanted to so long as they do it together and it's not you know a handful of people stepping forward and getting you know slaughtered immediately <laughs> <laughs> and academia and just getting uh, <laughs> right just but what i'm saying what, what all of my examples are attempting to get at i think is whatever the case actually is it's not difficult to imagine plenty of scenarios in which 80 percent of people feel a certain way and they all know they feel a certain way and it still doesn't determine institutional behavior yeah, because that's possible but it's not the only outcome no i know but but so you agree with me that it's empirically possible so then yeah. the question is just what is actually happening in academia right you agree with that so that's the question. It's not like my, my hypothesis is perfectly plausible. What is your hypothesis? My hypothesis is it wouldn't change behavior very much if professors knew the beliefs of other professors, because that's see. not what, <laughs> <laughs> right, but I'm making a hypothesis of what you we are. shall see, which yeah. is that it won't do much because the, the, what, I don't know what percentage it is, 60%, 80%, whatever. They don't care as much. I would guess if I had to pick a side, I would guess it probably wouldn't do much, but I think it's possible it would. Um, but yeah, we'll see. It's better than nothing, right? I, I agree it's with probably that. Probably better than nothing. <laughs> probably, yeah. And I think we, we should do it and we should promote it. And I do think it's... Um, it's telling, again, that regimes often attempt to create pluralistic ignorance that suggests that there's an advantage to a minority to promote pluralistic ignorance. And that having people realize 
what the majority believes is a threat to yes, the minority. That, yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a reason there's the, the sort of phrase divide and conquer, right? The thing mm-hmm. you want to do is you create these divisions and doubts among people, and then they're easier to control or conquer or whatever. Totally agree with that. I just am skeptical that that's the major causal pattern that is occurring in academia right now. I don't, I don't think that that is. I don't know if it's the primary one. I think it is one of the main ones anyway. But we've been going on for a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, how long is it supposed to be? I don't think we have a target. 